0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this, that we, uh, you've given us this morning to come to you and to begin the week in rest. Lord, we ask that we would be nourished by you today in Sunday school and worship by the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might be able to go out the rest of the week uh, with vigor to work as unto you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning to those who remain. Last week, we went over the first chapters of Proverbs, and we met the three main characters, the son, the woman wisdom, and the woman folly, together with uh, the supporting cast. We talked about the competencies of information and time management, and I'm going to recap those briefly. Uh, For information, we said it starts with the Bible, which, interestingly enough, uh, Pastor Jerry Taylor uh, kind of started off his sermon with that as well, talking about the information, the epistemology, how we know what we know, and that truth comes from Scripture. So we read the Bible. Read it every day. Read it all the way through, and read it over and over again. Beyond that, we said of information, read books. Why? Because Proverbs thirteen twenty says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The problem is, most of the wise are dead, or you don't know them, and so you need to read their books. And if you do know them, seek their counsel. We also said articles are for awareness and books are for insight. I wanted to explain that just a little bit. What does it mean? Imagine you're driving somewhere. You need to be aware of what's happening around you so you don't crash. But if you're driving, there is something much more fundamental you need to know. Where you are, where you're going, and how to get there. That's what books can help you to understand in your life. Logs are for awareness, but books can help you understand where you are, where you are going, and how to get there. After all, Proverbs 14.8 says, The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way. Of time, we said, it starts with the Lord's Day, in preparation for which we learn to order our common affairs beforehand, the essence of time management. We said, be like Ezra, be like Jesus, have a purpose, have a plan, do it, be ready, learn to prioritize, match available time to priorities, seek and give mentorship in this competency. So now we turn from the first nine chapters to chapters 10 through 20, which we see take the second form of wisdom literature that is employed in Proverbs, as we talked about last week, one sentence Two lines, with the second line usually a direct contrast to the first, or else it carries the meaning of the first line forward and explores it more. We're going to meet the same main characters and supporting cast as before, but as you recall in Proverbs 1 through 9, the woman wisdom cried out, Come into my house and I will teach you. In chapters 10 through 20, the son has entered the house of the woman wisdom. And he's sitting and listening at her feet. And now wisdom is telling him what wisdom looks like, what the wise do, and what the outcomes are. Wisdom tells him what foolishness looks like, what the fool does, and what the outcomes are. In these chapters, we see that wisdom leads to life, plenty, desires fulfilled, blessing, a good name, a legacy. And joy, the wise hear instruction and reproduce it, they pass wisdom on to others. There is a laying up of things. There is a laying up of wisdom, of knowledge, and of resources. In contrast, Folly's desires are dashed. Her life is shortened. Her name rots. Her resources flow to the wise. And the fool, for his part, is foolish, and he leads others astray. Where the wise pass on wisdom, the fool leads people astray. As we read through these chapters, the characters, the topics, they're refined. We're given greater details and introduced to the many-sided shapes of wisdom and or shape of wisdom and of folly. Uh, and we see these things sprinkled throughout the chapter. There's not a particular theme in any given chapter, at least it is easy to discern. And at the same time, there does appear to be a progression. So the density of the ideas kind of changes over time. An example would be that early in the book, you hear a lot of good things about a wife being from the Lord and and there being uh, much value in a good wife. But as you progress through the book, you discover that marriage can go off the rails and that um, complaining and bitterness can cause a man to want to give that good gift back. Uh, wisdom is extolled uh, very uh, highly, but if you're wise, we read, you're wise for yourself. Uh, we read about the diligent and how he lays up great wealth uh, for himself and for his children, but most children blow their inheritance. That's kind of the progression that we see in wisdom, and it kind of leads us to Ecclesiastes that that explores more of this idea of what is the purpose of wisdom, but wisdom. Last week, we used an example about fractals uh, to illustrate how wisdom and folly are constituted, and an example about divergence uh, to explore the relationship of wisdom and folly. Uh, this week, I'm going to use my baby girl's ornate building blocks. If you can see them up close, they're very, they're very pretty. They're very ornate. Um, but what you've got here are six, six faces on one block. right? And the sequence matters. You can line them up, one, two, and three. Okay. Uh, also, if you dig, uh, it takes a little more digging uh, to extract a block and, and look at it. That's Proverbs forces you to look at these concepts in sequence. So th- think of these concepts as wisdom. One block is wisdom. One block is righteousness. One block is riches. The way they're presented in Proverbs is in sequence. They're kind of sprinkled throughout. And it would take more digging to extract a block and look at all the sides of it. You'd have to take all of the verses that use the word sluggard, right, and extract all of those, and then you could kind of look at what are all of the verses that, that talk about a sluggard. That would be like pulling one of these blocks apart, uh, you know, away from the rest and, and looking at it to gain a better understanding of it. But still, you, you're going to need to put them back together. Because the individual blocks, let's see, um, Oh, because the way that the Proverbs fits them together, uh, sometimes it's a simple sequence, like one, two, three, and other times it's a less obvious sentence or a sequence, like uh, on the back of these blocks, probably hard to see from there, but I'll just describe it for you. There's one fruit on this block that corresponds with the one on the other side, then two fruits on this block and three fruits on that block. So as you see them in sequence, you get the idea. that There's, there's a theme on these blocks, the way that they're built. Uh, but some of them are even more interesting than that. You have an embossed shape here and a depressed shape here, and they fit together if you get them in the right order. And they uh, make sense of some of the other sequences on the other faces of the block. Okay, so just a, a simple example of how the proverbs seem to be organized as well. We're not looking, there's not a chapter on riches, and then a chapter on the sluggard, and then a chapter on. But instead, you meet verse after verse of these different concepts. And they're more complicated in the blocks because there's like 50 concepts. And each one, as we've discussed, is presented with its contrary. So the 50 kind of blows up to 100. And then they're very carefully fit together in this sequence. And it kind of brought to mind uh, something I've been reading about um, in a book called Signature in the Cell, the way that DNA works. What's happening with DNA, it's made up of ornate building blocks and those blocks are carefully arranged into three-dimensional structures that end up communicating incredible amounts of information that's only matched by the incredible efficiency and effectiveness of that communication. And so what I would put to you in this second form of wisdom literature is that what we are reading is the genetic code of wisdom. That's what we're seeing in chapters 10 through really the end of the book, but for this week, 10 through 20. So we could take, as mentioned before, a thread of those Proverbs and extract one block and look at it. If we did that with riches, for example, uh, we would find a whole bunch of different verses. I listed them all out and I wanted to read them all, but I think it would take a little bit too much time. So I'll let you study uh, what what word you would like to look up in Proverbs and maybe find those, those things and kind of do that experiment at home. But if you do that with the word riches, or uh, plenty, or wealth, in chapters 10 through 20, uh, what you would learn is that riches can come from basically three places. Dishonesty, um, inheritance, and diligence. And of the three sources, only one usually lasts very long, and that's uh, the one that comes from diligence, because the only character that's capable of maintaining wealth is the character that is developed in accumulating it slowly, and we learn that wealth is a shield against adversity, but it also tempts its owner to overestimate its defensive powers, and the rich themselves uh, the riches themselves invite attack, and the one who trusts in it will fall. We learn that riches flow from unrighteous to righteous, from the fool to the wise, from the sluggard to the diligent, and we 're not surprised then to find that Riches are with the wise, righteous, and diligent, and they pass them to their children. And we learn that wealth is the natural outcome of wise living. But if it becomes the goal, or the object, or the idol, the pursuit will corrupt the pursuer. We, work, we learn that wealth is a, a good thing. It is a very good thing. Uh, and it's important that we appreciate uh, what a good thing it is, and, and that it is a blessing that is given with no sorrow for the righteous from God. But the reason it's important to understand how good it is is that otherwise we'll miss how much better wisdom itself is, righteousness, and a good wife are. Because all of those things are climactically presented after you're introduced to how great riches are as being even better than riches. So our characters are being refined, but now we are going to turn to the competence. and Today we're going to take up talents. We did information, time. Today we're going to do talents. And my talents... We're going to boil it down to money, and the reason we're going to boil it down to money is because all of us have various uh, vocations and and different things that we have to do, different talents, Uh, but it it kind of comes to a a common denominator of money that translates between those things, and uh, the English word itself is an abstraction, kind of a spiritualization of the word Jesus used. Talents was actually uh, a kind of money, And uh, while Jesus was using it to stand in, uh, money as a stand in for whatever gifts you are given by God to steward, we all need to develop the talent for stewarding money. It's a functional baseline requirement for all the software developers out here, if they're already with us this morning. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But do you know what Jesus did have? Anyone? Anyone? A money box. He had a money box. Remember, Judas had charge of it, and he used to steal from it. We all, with our different talents and giftings, uh, end up having to come back to the common denominator of money. So whatever your vocation, the Christian ethic instructs you to provide for your family now, to give to those in need, to save up for your children, and to leave an inheritance to your children's children. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his Relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that doesn't just mean you're out making a salary. Homemakers count too. read Proverbs 31. Uh, you'll see that uh, providing the family uh, with um, food, and clothing, rising early in the morning to do the work that is required, working with willing hands, these are all contributions that are, uh, provide what are, we're told is no lack of gain. Um, Ephesians 4 says let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that they may have something to share with anyone in need in 2 Corinthians 12.14 Paul says children are not obliged to save up for their parents but parents for their children in Proverbs 13 a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children so as with time Christians, Christian teaching about money begins at the creation miracle of creation that we might read past very quickly is that six days of labor cover seven days of living. In fact, they cover eight because you have to start working on the eighth day again, and you're still living off of what was earned in the the six days previous. This uh, abundance uh, or this abundant provision is kind of driven home. In Exodus 16, you see see the same pattern with manna, the way that God provides for us. He provides our daily bread But he also provides for the days he tells us not to work. And then again in Leviticus 25, it says, Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year if we we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. So the miracle of surplus is a weekly miracle. It's the the miracle of diligence. And the surplus is is very great because it's enough to cover the tithe as well. So the competency, competency of time management began with the Lord's Day, where we give that day to the Lord. The competency of money management, begins with the tithe. The tithe, you'll remember, goes back to Father Abraham, who tithes to Melchizedek. And like the promised inheritance to him, the tithe predates the law by 430 some odd years. So yes, we are still supposed to tithe. Tithing is the first step in making sure we're paying attention to our finances. For starters, we have to know how much we make and we have to be able to calculate 10%. Basic math skills. Very much required for any kind of financial management. After that, we have to live on less than we make because we just gave 10% away. So these are the first steps toward responsible financial behavior. And after we've earned some money, there are only three things we can do with it. We can give it, save it, or spend it. And we should always be doing all three. We give it because we commanded to tithe. And because wisdom tells us one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers once, want. And in Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one, we read, The wicked borrows, but does not repay. But the righteous is generous and gives. For Psalm 112, 9, it says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So we save, that's, that's why we give. We save because we are commanded to provide for ourselves and our families while we live. And yet we know we will grow old and outlive our ability to earn our keep. Even still, we're told that it's not our children that are supposed to be paying for us. We are supposed to be saving up for our children, so we must provide for our aged, uh, our aged cells while we're still young. This is different than a lot of worldly cultures that actually uh, have kind of a built-in um, pyramid scheme slash communism out of their culture, where it's always the the working aged person who's paying for everybody up and down the ladder. But that's different than what Paul said. We're not obliged to save up for our parents. Now, at the same time, he does say you are supposed to care for your family, your relatives, and your members of your household. So exigencies being what they are, you may end up having to pay for your parents. But you individually should not plan on your child paying for you. That's the point. You should plan to be paying for yourself. So the, this, this principle is as basic as some of the principles that Jesus uses as examples in Scripture for what discipleship is like, what it means to be bearing uh, the cross of discipleship. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So wisdom tells us in Proverbs 13, verse 7, one pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Um, So that first one is basically, they look rich because they're spending everything all the time and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And the second one is living frugally and you think, ah, oh, they're they're very poor, you know, they don't have the nicest, finest things. But really, they're, they're the wealthy ones, and they're the ones that are providing for the responsibilities that they have. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. Second Corinthians 12.14 says, Children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So that's why we save. For spending, why do we spend? Because, as my father-in-law likes to say, it's the cost of living. Every time I want to complain about, complain about a bill, my alternator just went out this past week, and it costs a bunch to fix it, but uh, that's the cost of living. I need to pay for that. And we're told uh, by Paul, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And wisdom says, when goods increase, they increase who eat it, or who eat them. So, and then again, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So another reason to spend your money wisely. Uh, as As you study wisdom... Uh, what is the point or the end state? As we read through Proverbs, what we're left with is that we're supposed to get through life to the end in integrity and righteousness. If we're wise, as we go along, we will build up our house, we will accumulate wealth, and we will prolong life. There is a difference between rich and responsible, and what we're talking about here is responsible living. And too many Christians fail to be responsible because they do not look to their estate as they should. We suffer with the misconception that Christianity is against money, wealth, and riches. Uh, But the Westminster divines provide uh, some helpful commentary in the larger catechism, questions 141 and 142, that give a better view of the Christian perspective on this responsibility. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment, they say and I've shortened this because it's very lengthy, I encourage you to go back and read the rest, are to provide uh, a provident care I'm sorry, the duties of provident care and study to get, keep use and dispose the things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition. A lawful calling would be your vocation, your job and diligence in it, working as unto the Lord, frugality, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others, as well as our own. And in the next question, 142, an answer, what's forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, beside the neglect of the duties that are required, are idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. We're supposed to glorify and enjoy God, right? And this is a blessing he's given us. I I footstomp this because the norm that we see in Scripture for providing for the family, for generosity and hospitality for wealth accumulation and passing it generationally, the norm we see is that that is what's supposed to happen. Abraham passes, he, he exhibits all kinds of provision, obviously, for his family, hospitality and generosity to those around him. And then he passes great, a great inheritance to Isaac, who builds on what his father gave him and passes it to Jacob, who passes it to the twelve tribes. We also see another family, Boaz, beginning with Boaz, who is passing on his inheritance to Obed, his son, and then to Jesse. Remember, Jesse, if you read when Saul goes out to fight the Philistines, Jesse sends David down with an incredible amount of uh, food and supplies for the army. And, uh, you know, he has no small estate he also has a bunch of sons, and he passes his estate to David. Obviously, David comes into a kingdom and and generates a, a large estate in that way, but he passes it to Solomon. And uh, in Kings, you read about uh, fantastic amounts of saving and passing on that David did to Solomon so that he could build the temple and also just to set him up as as king. Uh, and, of course, uh, Solomon is... is one of the the wealthiest men of all time. And then Job. Job is another example where we see someone who has lived responsibly, he has accumulated great wealth, and he leaves it to his children. And the Bible makes a point of saying it. his second set of children, after his trial that he goes through, uh, he leaves inheritances even to his daughters. Think of that, all you young ladies. Maybe your fathers will leave you something. I've got five daughters, so I'll have to leave them something. Okay, Jesus now, at the same time, Jesus and Job want to break uh, a false assumption that, the, that humans make that riches are connected to righteousness. The richer you are, the more righteous you are. And the poorer you are, the less righteous you are. They want to break that false narrative. But at the same time, David and Solomon are ver- see a clear connection between righteousness and a lack of want, Righteousness and responsibility. Righteousness and an easy ability to discharge your duties and responsibilities. David says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So earn, give, save, spend. Now a word on debt. If the wise gather little by little, the fool shakes hands in a pledge. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. We read in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 1, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And then Paul says, owe no one anything, except for love. Debt brings the future into the present and consumes it. It does not distort reality, but it distorts our view of reality, and then it, that shapes our reality. We need to own rather than owe. Debt and lending are like divorce and slavery. They are allowed in Scripture, but they are never celebrated. They are a partial fix for something that is already completely broken. And if you're able to avoid debt in all its forms, you should. Think multi-generationally. It is possible to hand your children unbroken finances. So we will face financial struggle, but we need not exacerbate them with foolishness. Take Joe. He was not being uh, hounded by collectors or having his camels repoed. His trouble didn't start when his loans were called or when he lost everything. He went from a net worth of a whole lot to a net worth of zero. But how many Americans and Christians are worth negative amounts? Proverbs is clear that that is the foolish path, and we need to get off it as fast as we can. A great theologian once told me, God sends us adversity and trials to test and grow us, to be sure. But some problems are your own dumb fault. So I've taken that to heart. We don't want to be rich. We want to be responsible. We want to be stewards. We want God to bless us with additional responsibility because we've been faithful. Stewards of the resources that God has blessed us with. Uh, hold everything with an open hand so God can put into it and take out of it. Uh, and that's not upsetting to us. He owns everything and we manage it for him. So look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And finally, what about Jesus? Where does he fit into this? He wants the people of God to be wise. Uh, To paraphrase Moses, a slight paraphrase, see, I have taught you statutes and rules of wisdom. That's what we're learning in Proverbs. As the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for... That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the side of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. We're not trying to make America the kingdom of God, but we are the kingdom of God, his church. We're supposed to be a wise and understanding people. The world is supposed to look at the church and be like, whoa, they live as wise. They walk as wise, not as unwise. We need to be worldly-wise, but we need to have some heavenly wisdom here as well. There is a debt we cannot pay. We are consigned to wrath because of our sin, and the cost of our redemption would spend us and our all for eternity. Unless we're covered in the blood of Jesus, who sacrificed himself on the cross. So, brothers and sisters, that carries with it the full faith and credit of the kingdom of God. And what is more, we stand to inherit with him. It's the stewardship of the talents we're given in this life that God will look at and say, well done, good and faithful servant, or else, not not a good job. We want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a little. Now I will make you the master of much when we come into the inheritance with Christ. So that is all I have for this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would bless your word, you would make us wise as we read it. We ask that you'd give us the strength to walk in wisdom, and we ask that we would begin even now to live in a way that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.